Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From the way that bats hunt with echolocation to finding out more about March Mammal Madness. How do bats manage to hunt so efficiently and tune out all that background noise? Plus, we talk a little bit about the best event in March, of course, March Mammal Badness, find out how to play, and talk a little bit about the research into its impact and spread across the world. It's March, and that means seasons are changing. Sports are coming out of their hiatus and other sports are wrapping up. But most importantly, the key event that occurs in March is just around the corner. That is, of course, March Mammal Madness. Returning once again since its founding in 2013 by Dr. Katie Hind, now an associate professor at Arizona State University, she formed this competition as a way to, in a fun and exciting way, communicate about different types of animals, particularly mammals, her area of speciality, and use Twitter as a tool for science communication to share her passion and love for mammals with a wider audience. And a wider audience, certainly it has. It's grown in tremendous amounts, or in leaps and bounds, one would say, from 2013 all the way through to now. And it involves a large team of collaborators, main long-time organisers, co-collaborators, Chris Anderson and Joshua Drew, aren't mammalogists, but, well, they're forgiven and allowed to join in. Chris is an entomologist and Josh is a marine biologist, and they form the heart of a team which is incredibly large now. It, of course, includes artists, editors, scientists, narrators, geneticists, official Twitter accounts, summary, teaching materials, translated materials for different languages, and work to help push out across the internet and schools educational materials that use this competitive bracket elimination tournament to educate others about different types of animals, how they interact with each other, their strengths and weaknesses, their preferred habitats, and even the threats they face in their daily lives, whether that be from other creatures, predators, or even from humans. Now, this competition is designed to be a mass participation event, and that's why they work so hard to help others get information, like teachers, to be able to share with their classrooms. And recently, the team has just published a paper in the journal eLife Sciences, where they've outlined over the many years just how extensive this reach of this what started as a jokey science communication competition on Twitter evolved into a nationwide program that is estimated to reach around 1% of high school students in the United States alone in 2019. Now, this tournament really is about sharing the love for animals and what they can do. That's why this year's tournament includes a lot of different creatures that aren't exactly mammals, but have found their way as a regular mainstay in the tournament. This includes a couple of different divisions, because it is a bracket elimination tournament, much like basketball, March Madness. You would find that these tournaments have divisions. These divisions are categorized with different themes. This year's themes are red in fur, tricky taxonomy of myths and monsters, and sea beasties. Now, the ideas of these different divisions is to group animals with similar kinds of themes. Obviously, myths and monsters is not actually including real monsters, though that has happened in the past. It's more of animals that are named after mythological equivalents or mythological themes. An example of that would be the number one seed in that division, the harpy eagle, maybe the sphinx monkey, or a white-winged vampire bat. 
These are all examples of creatures that have scientific names, species names that related to some form of myth as an inspiration for the naming. Now, the idea for this tournament, for those who aren't aware, uh, now the 65 creatures in this tournament, two face off for a wildcard spot, but the remainder face off in a single elimination bracket style tournament. And what you do is you pick which creature you think is going to advance to the next round, all the way through. Now, the number of successful picks you make determines the number of points you get. If you pick a round one winner, you get only a small number of points, but the further and further your picks remain correct through the tournament, the more points you get. You total them all up, and you see how you go. A lot of people sometimes pick with their heart which creatures they feel they just have a strong attachment to, even though that might be illogical. For example, my own and other people's love of the chevrotain, the pencil-stick-legged tiny deer from Vietnam, often called the mouse deer. Now, chevrotain obviously tried to hop with its bouncy, bouncy, springy legs to victory, but of course, it was a small, tiny thing in a much more complicated and vicious division. That being said, it's not only predators that normally take the top gong or make it deep into the tournament, because creatures can make their way through by being better adapted to an environment, outlasting a competitor, or avoiding them, or maybe defending against an attacker using some kind of mechanism like a spike or a poison quill, just to name a few examples. Now, this mechanism for determining battles is randomised to an extent, but it is based on scientific literature where available. In fact, this whole tournament is based on scientific papers. If you view it purely as a means to encourage people to understand the content of scholarly journals and scholarly works, this tournament alone between 2013 and 2019 has exposed an incredibly wide audience to around 1,100 scholarly papers, which would otherwise have only had a very, very limited readership. This, in terms of a mass publication and communication of science, is one of the great strengths of this tournament, but it's also immense fun. It does mean that the results are typically science-based, though upsets do happen, and sometimes things that are outside anyone's control can greatly influence the outcomes of a battle. Maybe a prior competitor, maybe something from a previous round, or even intervention from humans. These things occur in the animal kingdom all the time, and thus the tournament has an element of randomness to it, which helps keep it exciting and fun. Now, if you want to get involved, head over to Arizona State University's library, which has a tremendous guide full of information about March Mammal Madness, how to play, how to get started, and facts and papers and summaries of all the creatures. There's also the Mammal Suck Milk blog, which was Katie Hines' original blog, which still includes information about the tournament and how to play too. Most of this takes place on Twitter and Facebook, where you can follow along accounts like MMM Let's Go, um, when that's the main account for publishing the, the bouts and the upcoming information, as well as accounts on Facebook and others, which will publishize the explanations of the tournament progress. Now, how does the tournament actually to work in terms of results? Well, they're shared through scientific narrations of each round of battle. That work is done by a team of narrators who blend pop sci GIFs, other pop culture references, along with actual scientific paper studies, information, pictures, you name it, about those creatures. Those are shared as part of the narration, and you can catch those narrations on Twitter and Facebook, and they're normally summarised at the end of each round. The first round goes down on March 8th. That's the wildcard round. So if you're listening to this podcast when it's released, you've got a little bit of time still to go. The rest happens on the main bracket beginning days of March 10th and proceeds over the month of March. You can involve at any point in time. Even if you didn't quite make the start, you can still play along and follow along. 
on your phone, on your devices, in your classroom. And that's really the great strength of this is the outreach to students. Now, it's estimated that around 245,000 students were reached in 2019 alone. And it's drawing huge amounts of page views to these libraries of materials, making it one of the most accessed pages in, and listings in all of the LibGuides network of library guides in the United States. It's around 272,000 views on that LibGuide page alone. And when you think about exposure on Facebook and Twitter, it's almost around 200,000 different people that get exposed to this. Now, that's not direct followers, but that's followers of followers count. Basically, the way you would measure eyeballs that would potentially see this content. The actual follower count and view counts are still very high for what is effectively, you would normally think, a niche tournament. And publication this year is only getting wider with large press in different forms. Obviously, NPR has covered this in the past, along with now Scientific American has done a great recap, and the recent paper has really highlighted the strengths of this tournament. Now, this tournament is run by volunteers, scientists, communicators, artists who enjoy animals. And that's really all it's about. Enjoying animals and enjoying sharing science, facts about animals, with each other. And it's great for young and old. I encourage you to get involved and check it out. Search March Mammal Madness on any of your favorite search engines or on your social media and you will find information out there to get involved and follow along. Even if you don't participate in making a bracket or trash talking to other competitors or other participants in the in the competition, you'll still have a lot of fun. You can read the paper in detail, which is actually freely available at eLife Sciences, and the paper is titled Education and Outreach, March Mammal Madness and the Power of Narrative in Science Outreach, with lead author obviously Dr. Katie Hind and a large team of collaborators. Bats can get a bit of a bad rap, especially if we've seen in the last couple of years. They can often be vectors for disease, can have some pretty nasty things if they manage to bite you, can chomp through the fruit on your trees or f make huge swarms that makes a lot of noise at night time. At least that's what the residents of some of the wealthier suburbs in Melbourne complain about. But bats are actually a pretty spectacular creature, mostly because they do something that is incredibly difficult. They navigate in the darkness and hunt with such extreme precision. And they achieve all of this through echolocation. Now, this whole concept is what gives bats their huge strength in a competitive advantage in hunting at night. But actually how they accomplish this and use it so effectively to filter out the background noise and actually sneak in on their prey precisely is very difficult to assess. And that's what researchers from Aarhus University in Denmark and the Max Planck Institute of Ornithology have worked on and published a paper in the journal Science Advances. The lead author of this paper was Dr. Laura Stilstot, who's a postdoc at Aarhus University. Now, the thing is, how do you actually analyse the signals that are being emitted as part of this echolocation? The problem is you would really basically have to be flying along with the bat. And that is very tricky. And you need some pretty special onboard computers strapped to the back of a bat. But that's exactly what these researchers did. They developed a 3-gram sensor that could analyse all of those sounds coming out of that bat and how it's actually using its echolocation. Now, they were done in the form of a small tag, and the tag records the echolocation calls and the movement of the bat in three dimensions. 
the key part here is to capture not just the calls, because the calls themselves are the signal sender. You also want to catch what is received by the bats. You may think of the bat ears and how big they are, they need them to collect all that noise. So it's not just the emission, it's also the receipt of the signals. So that's why this little sensor also has to track all of those sounds that come through, not just from prey, but also from the environment. So with these tags strapped to the back of bats, they let them out into the environment during one full night of foraging. And it allowed the research team to get a really precise picture of the sensory map of a hunting animal. Because when bats use echolocation, it's not like our vision, which has a peripheral vision and a wide range, and we then focus in on something we're interested in. Bats do do something similar, but remember echolocation is the emission of a noise. It's not like our hearing, which hears everything around us. You still have to send the pulse out first where you want it to go. So effectively, bats are controlling what they see with this emission source. So when they hunt tiny insects, when they're flying, that's using really precise, really fast signals. And they used these sound recording to find and track the echoes from both the prey, these tiny bugs, and vegetation, all that background noise that things will bounce off as well. Now, what they do is they, bats, listen for these extremely weak prey sounds. Now, what they're finding is when they send out their pulse from the bat itself, there'll be a lot of bounce back from a wall, from a plant, from a tree trunk, from a branch. All of these things will produce really loud signals back because, of course, they're large. They can reflect a lot of sound. But the prey, an insect, by comparison, is very small. So the reflected sound is very small. And the bats are actually precisely listening for those really small sounds. Now the bats themselves, by either making loud noises or softer noises, can also adjust the strength of these echoes too. And what they found is when they're hunting these small creatures, they actually use a softer sound, not a loud one. And the researchers were a bit muffled by this. Like, this prey is small, why would you want a small sound? Why would you not want a louder noise? Would have more chance of hearing from the background noise that particular small signal from prey. So the researchers tried to quantify the volume of air which bats could potentially detect an echo using echolocation. And by moving and adjusting the strength of their call, the bats are narrowing their search window, a bit like a form of acoustic tunnel vision. It makes the world much simpler and it blocks out a lot of stuff that they don't actually care about. So instead of getting signals from everything, they're really only getting something from what they're actually caring about, what's right near them. So that means they can actually find those really faint signals from bugs without having to worry about all of that loud bounce back noise from objects far away. And when bats are hunting, they stay at least one prey detection distance away from the vegetation. And they do that quite simply so that they don't get all that noise generated from plants and tree trunks and you name it. So they actually adjust their flight patterns and their sensory volumes to make sure that these two things are matched. If you're flying in a small distance, you don't want to be sending out a long-range pulse because otherwise you'll get too much bounce back and it'll be overwhelming. And this is how bats sort through 
their information, both in output and receipt, to actually help them to enable them to efficiently hunt. And a lot of this was able to be determined through this study by actually having these bat-mounted sensors to actually help them understand precisely what these bats were calling and precisely what these bats were receiving as bounce backs, along with tying it to position and flight data. This is a great project because it not only developed new fancy sensors for bats, but also developed new ways to understand how these creatures use echolocation. Great research from Aarhus University, collaborating with the Max Planck Institute, published in the journal Science Advances with lead author Laura Stittstolt and a large team of collaborators. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From a science outreach program, March Mammal Madness, and its tremendous reach across the world, to finding out how bats tune out a lot of the world to efficiently hunt tiny bugs. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.